This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm Paul Ingalls, and this time we consider ways to make peace in our relationship with money. When I was just a child, my life was all so simple, and the ways of the great world seem strange and funny. Then when I was a young man, I learned of that machine. Turns out all those bales of precious money. You might not normally think of money as a peace issue, but take a moment to think about the relationship you have had with money over your life. Has this relationship brought you peace or stress? Perhaps a little bit of both. Today on Peace Talks Radio, we'll be talking with two people who've thought a lot about the power of money in our lives. They'll share some ideas about how we can relate to money in a more honest way, to bring not only more internal peace, but to use money in positive ways to bring more peace to the world, too. Later, we'll visit with Brent Kessel, one of the top financial advisors in the U.S., will help us understand what category of relationship we hold with money and what to do about it once we figure that out. But first, we'll meet Lynn Twist, a global activist, fundraiser, and author who's dedicated her life to global sustainability, human rights, and economic integrity. She's raised hundreds of millions of dollars and trained thousands of fundraisers to be more effective in their work. While leading The Hunger Project for 20 years, Lynn traveled the world and developed a keen understanding of the psychologies of money, scarcity, and sufficiency. She shares compelling stories and insights from those experiences in her award-winning book, The Soul of Money, Transforming Your Relationship with Money and Life. We met Lynn Twist at the offices of Axion in Albuquerque, where she was about to lead a workshop. Axion International is a private nonprofit organization with the mission of giving people the financial tools they need to work their way out of poverty. Here's our host for today, Suzanne Kreider with Lynn Twist. Welcome, Lynn. Thank you, Suzanne. How much inner conflict does money make for people? Uh, I don't think money uh, does anything to people. I think people's inner conflict around money is their own creation. Money's kind of the innocent victim in the whole thing, if you if you uh, know what I mean. Money's neutral. Money uh, has no power except the power that we give it. We assign it its power. We assign it its value. We assign it its emotional and psycho- psychological power over us. And we assign it so much emotional value, so much psychological power, we even give given a kind of spiritual power over us that we have tremendous inner conf- conflict over money. Uh, pretty much everybody does. Even the wealthy have inner con- conflict over money. What's the solution? First of all, I'll say that uh, that our culture uh, is confused and upset around money. Um, we live in what's now uh, an intense tyranny of a consumer culture a commercialized, monetized consumer culture. So everyone alive today, not just in the United States, but it's really heavy and intense in the United States, lives in a consumer culture that uh, tells them that they need to be something that they're not. Well, how did we get from citizen to consumer? How did that happen? 
Uh, I don't know. I wish I could answer that question. It's a good one. Uh, I think part of what happened is that the um, that the political leadership of our nations uh, uh, sort of gave way to corporate power. Uh, uh, churches have given way to corporate power. Education has given way to corporate power. Uh, commercialization has kind of taken over almost every basic institution on earth. And uh, so that commercialization, that um, kind of monetized thinking of everything in terms of how much money does it produce or how much money does it uh, spend, has a lens uh, about life become so narrow that we can't see outside of it anymore and we can't see our own humanity. The purpose of money has really changed over time. Talk a little bit about what the original purpose of money was. Well, money historians uh, say that uh, money was invented, and we have to remember that we invented it, we human beings. It's not a natural phenomenon, and it doesn't grow on trees, or uh, pennies do not uh, rain from heaven. I'm sure we've all noticed that. Uh, we made money up, and we did it about 4,500 years ago, uh, historians say, and we did it just the way you would think we did. Uh, we uh, were in a barter economy, or a gift economy, or an economy of reciprocity, and if you and I were in a situation where you were, uh, I always kind of imagine that you might be the pig farmer, let's say, and I was the cobbler, and uh, I needed a pig, I would just hope that you had shoes that you needed repaired or that you had children or a wife that needed shoes made for them so that I would be able to trade that uh, so that I could get a pig. But if you didn't need shoes, uh, you didn't need your shoes repaired, then I would need to go to somebody else, uh, find out what you needed, and uh, let's, let's say you needed corn to feed your pigs. Uh, so I would go to the corn farmer hoping that the corn farmer, uh, he or she, would need their shoes fixed so that I could do that to get some corn to give you corn so you'd give me a pig. Now, that's very complicated. It actually sounds stressful. I mean, I'm getting the sense of stress even 4,500 years ago. That well, we wanted to share our goods and services with one another in a more equitable, easier, uh, more smooth way. So we, as a human family, we invented money, which is really the origin of the whole thing. So that, with the purpose that you asked me to articulate, the purpose of money originally was to facilitate the sharing of goods and resources with one another, facilitate our gifts, facilitate our crafts, facilitate me being able to share with you what I have to offer and you being able to share with me what you have to offer. So the purpose of money was to facilitate the sharing of goods and resources with one another equitably. Now that uh, it's gone far afield from that, but that's why we invented it in the first place. And how far has it gone? How has this purpose changed or how has commercialization developed that's created so much inner strife for people? Well, there's a lot of people who are experts on this, and I'm not one of them, but I will uh, take from the work of Bernard Lietar, who's the Belgian banker who invented the euro, uh, and other people like Tom Greco, who invents alternative currencies, and just say that uh, money uh, started to get a little confused for humanity once banking was invented. And banking brought into the picture uh, what's often called usury uh, by some of the religious leaders, uh, particularly in Islam, it's called usury. But this whole concept of interest, that you could make money with money by doing absolutely nothing but having it. And that, you could say, 
is was the beginning of the whole thing started to go going a little bit askew because people now and for really several thousands of years have been able to earn without producing anything without creating anything without providing anything for anyone else and that uh, changed the game so that uh, and probably many other things along the way but that's a sort of a simple explanation of when banking came into the picture so now money has as its purpose in, uh, in not in every case but often to marginalize to control to manipulate to accumulate to make sure that these people don't get their hands on it and these people have control over it and keep more of it than maybe they uh, can ever even spend or need. And so that distortion has created uh, a, a, a tremendous amount of suffering and anxiety and upset around money. And I even say uh, a, a culture that's confused and um, I think um, has lost its integrity with its relationship with money. I attended one of your workshops and you had us break into pairs and I was supposed to tell my personal financial sob story to my partner. While my partner looked at me with no verbal or nonverbal feedback. And my personal financial sob story was, I should have saved more money for retirement by now. So I ranted, I raved, I was embarrassed, I'm humiliated. And my partner did nothing, like a stone statue. And something happened. I wouldn't say the story is 100% gone, but it's mostly gone. Mm. How did that work? Can how Explain to our listeners how they can let go of their sob story. Well, first of all, I, I want to say that everyone has a sob story, and everyone thinks their sob story is real and true, and they're the victim of this, that, and the other thing. And that mindset, that... Uh, understanding of ourselves as a victim of some terrible divorce or some horrible harsh father or some awful business deal that didn't go through or things we did do that we shouldn't have done or things that we didn't do that oh my god we should have done that runs our relationship with money and the purpose of that exercise and uh, for people that are listening you can do this all by yourself although it's nice to have another person we are also caught in those sob stories and I call them sob stories to insult them you know it doesn't mean that the divorce that a person had wasn't enormously painful. It doesn't mean that the settlement wasn't unfair. I'm not saying that. But if you live your life out of that upset, you're never going to be satisfied. And you're never going to kind of get over your baggage about money. But if you actually realize that you've taken that incident, the divorce or the harsh father or the investment that fell through, and made it into a justification or a reason why you can't get anywhere in your financial life. It starts to be something that makes you right and everything else wrong and then you have no power. You can't create a new future for yourself. So I invite people to start labeling it a sob story and tell it to someone who won't agree with them, who won't feel sorry for them, who won't nod and moan and um, you know kind of make it uh, make you feel better. Oh poor you! Oh dear, he was so mean to you in the divorce, or she was such a uh, you know terrible uh, uh, ex-wife. 
uh, if, if you don't give anybody agreement with their sob story, then it starts to sound kind of silly. It sounds, starts to sound like what it actually is, which is whining and moaning and complaining and not getting on with your own life. So um, I recommend that people look and see where is their sob story located and just release it and create a new future with money. That's Lynn Twist, author of the book The Soul of Money, Transforming Your Relationship with Money and Life. And we'll have more with Lynn Twist and later Brent Kessel when Peace Talks Radio continues after this break. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm Paul Ingalls, and today we're exploring the often conflicted relationship we have with money. Here again is Suzanne Kreider talking with Lynn Twist, author of the book The Soul of Money, Transforming Your Relationship with Money and Life. Lynn, you refer to Buckminster Fuller's radical surprising truth, there is enough for everyone. And you say that enough is a context, not an amount. Can you explain that, what a context is? Good question. Um, well, uh, we're so enamored with content, which means how much, you know, how much money, how much time, how many emails, how much, uh, how much, much we've eaten or how much we haven't eaten. We're just obsessed with amounts and measurements. And um, really what really shifts things in life and changes the game is not the content of life, but the frame or context in which we perceive or from which we perceive life. And that's where we all have enormous amount of power. And so when I, uh, when I talk about the context of sufficiency um, or the context of enough, I uh, want to kind of remove people from this uh, trying to understand, well, what is enough? Is it uh, this much money in the bank or this much money in retirement? I'm not really, uh, I don't want to get caught with people in that conversation, but rather that there is a space and a place to live from where you start to experience the enoughness of life, that the needs of, of you and me and really the needs of life are met, sometimes in miraculous and exquisite ways, and that if we let go of trying to get more of what we don't really need, which is what we're all scrambling to get more of, a consumer culture kind of forces you to think that way, um, it frees up tons of energy to turn and make a difference with what you already have. When you make a difference with what you have, it expands. That's a context or a principle of sufficiency. 
Well, talk about the steps to get there, because I'm thinking about, I had a wonderful opportunity to walk into the home of a woman in an Indian village. She In the home, there were four pots, one light bulb, and a couple pieces of clothing. And that's it, in a four-room house. The bed was outside. And then I watched myself. I'm going from store to store to store trying to find the perfect lampshade. Mm. So isn't it also culturally based, the suffering we have? Talk through how Americans we're really swimming upstream if we're saying, I don't have to have all these different things. Uh, Yes, you're completely right. It's very challenging in a culture that's based in consumerism, in acquisition, in accumulation, uh, to actually create a space or a field where you can experience enough. Uh, Consumer culture doesn't foster or support that at all. In fact, it fosters more is better. More of anything is better. More shoes, more sweaters, more square feet in your house, more um, highways, more market share, more companies. It just fosters an endless stream of more. But if you recognize that you're living in that culture and that that culture doesn't necessarily reflect who you are, you sort of just step back from it. This is a source of real peace, actually, and that's, I know, the topic of your program. And that is to realize that outer wealth has no real bearing on our own prosperity. It's inner wealth. It's the inner riches that once we deepen and develop them, appreciate them, and harvest them, that's where peace is located. That's really in the depth of our humanity who we really are. And in that Indian village that you described, uh, you didn't talk about the person who owned the house, but I would suspect that without a lot of extra stuff, which is what all the rest of us are dealing with, there's a kind of peace in the heart of the person who owned that house. And we all know that once you clean out your closet or you throw away the old food in the in the food cupboard that you haven't eaten in five years that you bought in bulk at Costco, or uh, when you clean out your car or when you clean out the storage bin, you feel much more centered in who you are. It's interesting. It's not an accident. When we simplify, we're closer and deeper to the heart of peace in our life. You know, there's a wonderful phrase from Aristotle, and I love to think of when I ever go any near a shopping center. And he says, he used to say, uh, I go to the market to see all the things that I don't need. It's such a joy to go to the market and look at all the things that I don't need. (laughs) And I love that phrase, and I always think of that when I approach Whole Foods, which is, you know, just filled with all the things that I think I've got to have, or a a, a shopping center with just the siren song of, you've got to have this, you've got to have that. And I have such satisfaction in realizing I have 16 sweaters, and I love every one of them. And also to be in your life in a way that you appreciate what's there. And when you appreciate it, it grows in value for you. So that's a, a, a way to kind of be in a consumer culture that's trying to, it's like a predatory culture. It's trying to take your satisfaction away rather than give it to you. Um, and so you, if you think about it that way, you can sort of be in the culture and and uh, and it's comical. It's uh, You can lighten up about it rather than be hooked by it. You don't like the term nonprofit. You like social profit. What's the difference? 
Well, I've been in in the sector uh, that most people call nonprofit all my life, and um, I it's also called the non-governmental organizations and NGOs or not for profit. And I realized at one point I don't like being in the non-sector, the not for sector. I don't lead, not, like being defined. I don't like being defined by what I'm not doing. Uh, I want to say what we are doing in our sector. And uh, when I really began to think about it, I realized, well, this is the sector where Mahatma Gandhi did the work that changed the world. And you just say Gandhi's name and people are instantly inspired. This is where Martin Luther King, uh, you know, uplifted the whole human family. This is the sector where Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony uh, began the process of having women's voices be heard in the political process. This is the sector where Cesar Chavez did his work. This is where Mother Teresa did her work. All the people I admire were in the not sector or the non-sector. And so I realized, you know, these people were prophets. They were prophets, P-R-O-P-H-E-T, and they were generating a profit, P-R-O-F-I-T, for humanity, a legacy. And this is what I'm doing, and this is what people who are working for their church are doing, and this is what's happening at the PTA, and this is what's happening in microcredit. You know, that's really where profit lives and prophecies are fulfilled. So I decided to rename our sector Social Profit because I think we are generating a social profit for the world no matter what we're doing. It is an endless legacy for humanity to, to live a better life and for all species really. And, um, and we are the social profits of our time because we're taking a stand for a future that's not an extension of the past but a future that's created out of possibility and out of our um, our uh, commitment to make a difference with our lives. You have said it takes guts to reallocate the resources of the world towards love. And in your book, The Soul of Money, you tell some amazing stories about people who've had the guts. So tell us a story about someone who showed how important it is for people, regardless of their income, to really invest in social profits. Gosh, there's so many stories, but I just, I'm just having a little moment here about my grandchildren. Um, one of the things I've done in my life and with our children is uh, uh, we, on Thanksgiving, um, would often give our children, uh, even if they were pretty small, 10, 12, 14, $500. And the goal uh, and the, uh, the request, the invitation, was to give this money away between now and Christmas Day to three organizations that you admire, respect, and feel are resonant with your values and to volunteer with all three of them between now and then and to not tell us until Christmas Day how you use that money and have it all given away by then. And then on Christmas Day, or Christmas Eve at at dinner is really how we would do it, they would share about where they gave the money, why they gave it there, what they learned from volunteering, and how inspired they were about the opportunity to be a philanthropist at age 10. And or age 12 or age 14. And I'm now doing that with my grandchildren. This is the first uh, year that we're doing that, and they're a Muslim, so Thanksgiving and Christmas isn't that meaningful for them. Uh, they're into Ramadan, uh, which was already finished by Thanksgiving. But um, they're in the Muslim faith, just like in the Christian faith or, faith or the Jewish faith or the Buddhist faith or any faith. Uh, one of the things that's taught is uh, sharing one's resources. And so... Um, 
we're doing that with our grandchildren. And uh, it's just so inspiring to see people, little people, they're six and eight, Mm -hmm. realize what a difference it makes to move your money not in the direction of your desires or the predatory consumer, you know, kind of training that we get. Even little ones, as you know, by a t- uh, by the time a child gets to kindergarten, they can identify uh, something like a thousand brands. You know, they can tell McDonald's from Burger King or etc. And only ten trees. They know the names of not even ten trees, uh, types of trees. So our our young people, our our children are really being, you know, kind of their minds are kind of being stolen before they even get to school. And to have um, a six-year-old who's now just in first grade begin to realize that the power of the money they earned helping to wash the car or the money that they've saved from their allowance or the money they got from their grandmother on Thanksgiving can be used to make the world a better place and move towards that which they love, that which they are inspired by, that which which touches other people and, and gives them the opportunity to, to be a kind of a young philanthropist is so inspiring. You also say that money is like water, a conduit for love or hate. Can money bring peace to the world? Absolutely, absolutely. One of the greatest privileges I've ever had is uh, working now. I have an assignment, a beautiful assignment, to work with the Nobel Women Laureates. And uh, since the Nobel Peace Prize was given, uh, it's been 100 years, 11 women have won the Nobel Peace Prize, and seven of them are alive today. And I'm, I'm so inspired by the work that they've done in their lives that gave them the Nobel Prize. And I'm also so inspired to see with my own eyes what a small amount of money will do to generate peace in an area of war and conflict. So, for example, the recovery uh, and the rehabilitation of a 12-year-old child soldier who was forced to murder his own parents. It is possible to rehabilitate that child and make them a peacemaker, not just a normal person, but someone who's turned their life around and become a peacemaker. And that costs about $5,000. That is such a huge result from an investment like that. It probably doesn't even cost that much in Africa. Um, When I see people turn their dollars, turn the money that flows through their life, when I say money's like water, I, I talk about the flow that comes through every life, whether it's a trickle or a rushing river. If you start realizing that one of the jobs of being a human being is to be one of the people who's the trustees of this flow that comes through every life. And you take the money uh, in as it comes to you from earning it or from receiving it in some way and turn it towards that which you love, that which you care about. Move it towards your highest commitment. It gives you peace in your heart and you can bet that everything that money is 
is doing in that flow is going towards peace and prosperity for our planet, whether it's an, for an environmental issue, uh, which ultimately will, will, will come down to being a peace issue, I believe, or if it's about preventing teen pregnancy, uh, which ultimately you can say is a peace issue because it creates a field where uh, a, a family can actually make it. Uh, ultimately, everything I look at is ultimately about peace, and it creates peace in the heart of the person who's directed money in that direction. I'm Suzanne Kreider, and you're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Our guest today is Lynn Twist, author of The Soul of Money, and with her husband, the co-founder of the Pachamama Alliance. Lynn, you're here in New Mexico working with a social profit organization called Axion, and Axion gives loans to entrepreneurs. How does that kind of social prophecy help build peace? Well, if you look at what where violence is proliferating it's where people are oppressed where people have no way out where people have no access to credit no access to the digital age uh, where they're treated as subhuman or uh, as as throwaway people and um, Axion is just remarkable. Microcredit itself is, I think, one of the most important social inventions of the last hundred years, I would say. And Axion, particularly Axion in New Mexico, uh, here run by Ann Haynes, is so brilliant and one of the most um, cutting-edge uh, branches of microcredit that I've ever seen. And I've seen the Grameen Bank in Bangladesh, I've seen Seva in, in India, I've seen Women's World Banking all over Africa, Finca all over South America. This particular place uh, in New Mexico and this particular Axion is the best I've ever seen. And uh, why it's so important is it takes philanthropic dollars and puts those dollars in the hands of people who have a commitment to move themselves out of poverty and oppression, who have a dream, who have enough uh, passion and strength to actually get out of poverty, but lack access to money, access to credit, access to financial understanding, access to um, uh, the kind of financial literacy that will allow them to, with a small loan, the loans are not that big, uh, get themselves from where they are into the economy. And that is the best philanthropic investment that we can, any of us can make because it's banking on people. It's banking on people's ingenuity, people's passion, people's creativity, and they don't just give them the money. They give them all the skills to make the business work. And it's, so it's a whole package of respecting, trusting, and empowering a human being to make it. And I'm just over the moon about it. I think everybody should give money to Axion <laughs> in New Mexico and you know continue to spread the good work that they're doing. You and your husband co-founded the Pachamama Alliance, and you all are really working on the ground to save the rainforest. But it's also about changing the dream. Talk about how changing the dream creates peace for the world. Well, uh, the indigenous people we work with in the Amazon told us in our first encounter with them 
uh, if you're coming to help us, don't waste your time. If you're coming because you know your liberation is bound up with ours, then let's work together. So from the outset, they told us the most important work we could do to save the rainforest, in addition to helping them uh, stave off the threat of oil and logging and the other things that are kind of pushing on the rainforest, um, is to come home and change the dream of the modern world. And it's a romantic phrase, but it's real hard work, and it's what your radio program is all about. It's really what everybody who's listening really wants for the world, and that is we're caught in a trance, a consumer trance, a trance that has us think we need more of everything at the expense of the very source of life itself, the earth and our relationship with one another. And so to change the dream is the source of peace because the dream now is caught in violence, in retribution, in consumerism, in um, thinking that we've got to have more, in greed, in avarice, in competition, unbridled competition. And peace will be a product of letting that dream go. Peace will be a product of, of changing that dream, transforming it, and realizing that coexistence, collaboration, reciprocity, uh, sustainability, reverence for life, reverence for the ecosystems that give us life, is the source of prosperity in every single person and in every family. What are the three things that our listeners can do in the next week to change the dream? Read The Soul of Money, my book. Uh, if I could do that, I don't know if that's yes. permissible here. <laughs> Buy The Soul of Money and read it. Borrow it, take it out of the library. Um, uh, number two, find a place where you can take the Awakening the Dreamer Symposium, which is a all-day or half-day uh, educational program that, that really invites people uh, to understand the environmental crisis, the social justice crisis, and the spiritual crisis as one breakdown in our human journey uh, and is designed to help people understand how they can bring forth an environmentally sustainable, spiritually fulfilling, and socially just human human presence on this planet. And then three, um, to find a way uh, to deepen your own uh, uh, sense of inner wealth and your own inner riches and center yourself there, whether it's a spiritual practice, whether it's uh, a, a kind of a philosophical path that you get on, uh, to uh, compensate for the enormity of the influence of living in the tyranny of a consumer culture. Uh, we need to offset it. We need to offset it in our own personal lives. We need to know that meaning is never actually going to come from that, but that it comes from the inner wealth of our relationship with ourselves, our relationship with our own spiritual life, or our own spirit, you could say, and our relationship with one another. And spend time in gratitude. Recommendation number three uh, comes from a great teacher of mine, Brother David Stendhal Rast, who teaches gratefulness. And he has a website, gratefulness.org, that will deepen your capacity to be grateful uh, for whatever is, is in your life and deepen your capacity for gratitude as a way of living. Lynn, could you distill into one or two sentences what you most want people to remember about making peace with money? Money will never give you the peace that you're looking for. Uh, the doorway to peace, fulfillment, and prosperity is never accessible through more. The doorway of more only gives you lack. 
uh, and then you need more again and then it it turns into lack and then you need more again the doorway or the portal to peace prosperity and fulfillment is recognizing and being in the exquisite experience of appreciating what's already there what I call living in the house of enough or dwelling in the context of sufficiency and appreciating what's already there realizing the bounty the blessing and beauty of your own life no matter what set of circumstances you're in the beauty of the gift of life itself your relationships the people you love the people that love you and the profound experience of life itself that actually is the root the pathway uh, and the source of fulfillment prosperity and peace Lynn Twist thank you so much for being with us my pleasure my honor my delight Lynn Twist is author of the book The Soul of Money Transforming Your Relationship with Money and Life for a link to her website you can visit our website peacetalksradio.com that's peacetalksradio.com and you're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm Paul Ingalls, and today we're exploring the often conflicted relationship we have with money. Our next guest is Brent Kessel, named one of the top 250 financial advisors in the U.S. by Worth Magazine. And if you go to his website, brentkessel.com, you can take a quiz to determine your money type, the type of relationship you have with money. I'm looking at the quiz now here and the uh, types of questions it has. Number one, money primarily allows me to, and these are the choices, not worry, uh, buy things and experiences that I enjoy, take care of others, sometimes at my own expense, have a sense of importance and recognition from family and friends, and there are several others. You're supposed to pick up to three answers. Here's another one. When it comes to money, at my most extreme, I'm avoidant and sometimes confused, frugal and disciplined, hungry for attention and praise, and there are several others there as well. Here's one more. Over the last five years, my financial net worth has A, grown, primarily due to good saving and investing habits, B, declined, primarily due to lack of focus or gifts to family and friends. Another option is, I have no idea or don't think it's important. Anyway, you answer all these questions and you wind up finding out your money type, you're perhaps more of a guardian type, alert and careful about money. Or you're an idealist type, creative and compassionate but often skeptical about money. Or you're a star type. You spend, invest, or give money away to be recognized and to seem hip and classy. There are eight types, and most people are mixtures of each. But once Brent Kessel finds out which type you are, then he can help you understand your relationship with money and address any conflict you might have over it. Brent Kessel is co-founder of Abacus Wealth Partners that manages close to $1 billion in client assets. And he's also studied meditation with many of the world's most revered meditation teachers, including Thich Nhat Hanh, the Dalai Lama, Eckhart Tolle, John Kabat-Zinn, and others. Brent Kessel is the author of It's Not About the Money, Unlock Your Money Type to Achieve Spiritual and Financial Abundance. And he spoke with Suzanne Kreider from his office in Pacific Palisades, California. Our show is about making peace, but making peace is a two-way process. So how can people make peace with money if it can't talk back to us? That's a great question. You know, I actually feel like it does talk back to us in, in certain ways. And it's not so much that the money's talking back. It's our, it's our inner reactions to it that are talking back. 
um, often, you know, I, I've seen people really have a two-way kind of relationship with money where, you know, they're actually projecting a lot of feelings and, you know, almost personifying money that it's evil or it's got bad intentions for them or it's got good intentions for them. And, you know, I think because it's so closely tied to survival, it's almost a supplanted mother, you know, supplanted parental figure and whatever issues you had with your parents, you know, you likely are projecting those same issues onto your relationship with money. And in your book, you know, you talk about how people become accustomed to a specific state or a certain state of being with money. And it reminded me of that set point theory with weight control that they say it's largely genetically determined uh, how much we're going to weigh. Is that true about money? There's a financial set point? That's an interesting question. I don't I don't know much about set points. I don't think it's so much genetic, but I do think that the environmental influences we have when we're young have a huge, huge impact. And that impact is largely unconscious. We're not really aware of the formative moments where something happened to us that created trauma or pain or, you know, a decision really that I'm I'm never gonna let that happen to me again. I'm going to behave this way with money in the future so that I don't have to go through these feelings again. And it is really complex because I think um, my mom had a couple, well, my mom had a lot of stuff about money, but one of them was there were five kids in our family mm-hmm. and we were only allowed to have four Oreo cookies at a time. Uh-huh. So it was all about counting. Uh-huh. And then another thing she did, and people will be horrified to hear this, but bless her heart, she said she couldn't afford to pay for Novocaine. When, when we had our fillings done. Mm. So those that's what you're talking about. Those kinds of experiences really impact how we relate to money as adults. Right. They, they certainly do. Um, you know, and I, what's interesting to me is almost genealogically going back and seeing what caused your mom to have that relationship to money. You know, what was it about you know, having money that when had she not had money? And you know, many people approach not having money with cutting costs. A lot of people, especially in today's society, approach not having money with ignoring it, with essentially putting their heads in the sand and letting credit cards or parents or family members or friends, you know, pick up the slack. And then many people approach not having money with earning more. And that's really why I I wrote about these financial personality types or what I call the eight financial archetypes, because people react very differently uh, given a certain situation in life, like not having enough money. Right. And the archetypes are based on the wanting mind, it sounds like. Let's talk about that, because you tell a fascinating story about a dentist who doubled his portfolio from $4 million to $8 million. Right. And when he saw the $8 million on paper, his response was what? You know, it was essentially, where are we going from here? You know, when's the eight going to become 12? Um, and it, the, the response behind the response was, it's not enough. You know, I thought I wanted to double my money, but now that I have doubled my money, I'm left with the same feelings of, you know, discontent or mal, malease, you know, for lack of a better word, um, about my money or about my life. And so I guess I must just need more of the same. And that's really what the archetypes are, is, you know, more of the same, more of the same. I think that this will do it for me, whether this is more savings, as in the dentist's case, 
or more spending, as in the case of the pleasure seekers case, or taking better care, more care of people that are suffering that need my help, which is what the caretaker would do. But isn't that just part of being human, that we have this wanting mind? Is it something we can really change? I think that the way we change it is by putting our awareness on it. Um, so it's not that the thoughts stop. I've, I've spent many, many hours and days and weeks in silent meditation. And, you know, a lot of the people think of meditation as emptying your mind of thoughts. I don't think of it that way. I think of it as placing your awareness in a different place, you know, a different perspective so that you see the thoughts and you see their, you know, unrelenting nature, how they just keep arising, falling away, arising, falling away, and that there's no choice in what arises or falls away, really. And so the change is not believing them. The change is not acting with money based on what those thoughts tell you to do. And often, I mean, one of the things I, I do with myself and with clients and in the book is ask yourself what the promise is. You know, if, you're, if the thought that's coming up, if the wanting mind is saying to you, like with this dentist, get from 8 million to 12 million, ask yourself to be very specific about what the inherent promise is. Why? You know, will I be happy? Will I be relaxed? Will I not stay up late at night fretting about money and expenses? You tell me exactly what that's going to give me. Generally, the wanting mind can't. It doesn't want to get that specific. But if it can, then you've kind of got an audit trail. You can actually look and see if it happens or not. And by and large, it doesn't, as, as it didn't for the dentist from $4 million to $8 million. Right, because you say the suffering ends not when we get that thing, but it ends when the wanting stops. That's right. And that's exact. I mean, so for some moment... You know, you just keep staying with the dentist for a minute. When he first got to $8 million, there were, you know, a couple of days of peace, of just relaxation, of not wanting. You know, I've had other moments in my own life where I eat an incredible meal, and I'm just so taken with, you know, the sensory enjoyment of that meal that I'm not wanting anything else. Or I love snowboarding, and I'm snowboarding on an incredible powder day, and it just, you know, I'm absolutely present, and there's no wanting going on. I mean, most entertainment, if you think about what we call a great movie or great CD or, you know, just most entertainment is great because it keeps us from thinking about our own wants and desires. We're completely enraptured in the entertainment. And so it's that cessation of wanting that is the drug, if you will, that keeps hooking us back into wanting more because we think it's the object. We think it's the four million. We think it's the snowboarding. We think it's the meal. We think it's the blouse that gave us the pleasure. And it was the catalyst, but it was really the absence of wanting anything that was the real source of our peace. Our conversation with financial advisor Brent Kessel continues in a moment as we continue to explore our often conflicted relationship with money. Today on Peace Talks Radio, a series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. More after this break.
I'm Paul Ingalls. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, a series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Today on Peace Talks Radio, we're talking about the power that money has in our lives and how we can find some peace in our relationship with money. More now with financial advisor Brent Kessel, author of the book It's Not About the Money, Unlock Your Money Type to Achieve Spiritual and Financial Abundance. Here again is Suzanne Kreider. There's a fun quiz on your website, brentkessel.com, and it lets people identify their financial archetypes. Brent, can you guess what my top score was? Uh, I would guess idealist only because of the name of the show you host, but I don't know you at all. <laughs> well, that's very flattering, but actually I'm a guardian. I scored, Are you? Yes. I'm, uh-huh. And I think the, um, that's also known as a hypervigilant tightwad, right? Um, in the extreme sort of unbalanced version, yes, it can be that. So my score was 38% guardian. Mm-hmm. And um, your analysis includes that I abide by certain fear-driven rules like never having debt. And that's true. Right. I have absolutely no debt. But is uh-huh. that bad? Isn't no. that making peace with myself? Sure, it could be. I mean, that's the interesting thing is I didn't create the architect system in order to label people or make people feel bad about who they are with money. It's every one of the archetypes has gifts and has pitfalls. So the gifts of the guardian are that you're alert and you're prudent and you're willing to look at the numbers. I mean, you know, I'm guessing, how much you spent last year roughly and how much you made and how much you have in savings or investments. And if you if you did have any debt, you'd know how much debt you had, given that you're a guardian. There are a whole bunch of other archetypes, generally the star, the pleasure seeker, the caretaker, the innocent, sometimes the idealist, who often don't know what they have and what they make and what they spend. And so having one of the gifts of the archetype is critical for those folks to achieve balance. You know, but on the negative side, you can be worried and anxious no matter what's going on, which was true of that dentist as well. He was a guardian. So he was just worried and anxious no matter how much money he had and how much the investments had grown. So what's the fix? I mean, is there a perfect combination of archetypes? You know, I wouldn't say perfect, but the more we can create balance between all eight, the better off we are. And the more kind of fluid we are between them. I often tell couples, you know, if you're a guardian and your partner, your life partner is a pleasure seeker, switch places for a week. You act out the pleasure seeker and let your partner act out the guardian and be playful with it. You know, you can even kind of be sort of extreme and you know, have this, so you're going out, you know, for dinner, where should we go, honey? And normally, you know, your partner would be the one saying, let's go to the new fancy Italian place. And you'd be saying, no, 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 come on, we're not going to enjoy it that much. Let's just get a burrito. And you switch roles. And so you pick the, you know, the really fancy new place. And he's the one having to say, or she, you know, no, we don't, we don't really have the money to afford that. And we've got to rein things in a bit. We've been talking about how to make peace internally with how we deal with money. Let's talk about how we can use our money to make peace on the planet. Will you tell the story from your book about your friend Bob Patillo's son? Oh, it's a great story. I was actually just with Bob last week. And yeah, Gus is his son, who at the time I think was uh, was 15 or, or 13. I probably say it in the book. I don't quite recall. Um, Bob and Gus are driving along and uh, and... I think he actually told me, it's not in the book, but he told me just last week that they were in the parking lot of like a, a Walmart or something like that. And they see this van uh, being loaded by a group of nuns. And Bob says, let's pull over and see what they're up to. And so they pull over and they go and ask the nuns. And the nuns say, well, we, we run an orphanage for kids. 
And I think this is December 23rd that this happens. And the nuns say to Bob and Gus, the orphanage burned down um, two days ago, and all of the gifts that we had had donated for the orphans burnt down, you know, with the orphanage. And so we, you know, we got the store, again, I don't remember which one it was, to agree to donate, you know, some of their slightly damaged merchandise as gifts for the kids. And we're just loading it up in the van to take back. And so, you know, Gus and Bob helped them load the van. And Bob had instituted an allowance system that I call three buckets in, uh, in the book where, and I do this with both of my kids who are only seven and five, where essentially you give them an allowance, and the number I like is a dollar per year of age per week. So my kids get $7 and $5 a week respectively. But then you split that into three buckets, one for spending, one for giving away, and one for saving for the future. And the way Gus and Bob did this is they just carried the balances on a little three-by-five card, and Bob would essentially give Gus the money when he needed it and deduct it. So Gus says to Bob, Dad, tell me how much I have in my giving bucket you know, on the card there. And Bob pulls the card out and says, you've got $26. And Gus says, great, I'd, I'd like to give you know, the nuns $20 of it to help the orphans. And you know, Bob was just very deeply moved by his son's compassion and generosity. And every time he tells the story, he just tears up. It's a, it's a very sweet, fatherly moment. How much should we give? You know, that's actually one of the subheadings in the book where I talk about how much we should give. And, you know, the problem with the word should is it's, uh, you know, it's kind of externally imposed. It's, you know, it can be externally imposed. What would my parents tell me is the right amount to give? What does the culture tell me? What does my religious leader tell me? And I really like to ask people to go inside themselves and figure out what experience they're having from their giving. What I've found, though, is that if it's not a little bit uncomfortable, if you're not stretching yourself, then you're really operating too much from within your archetype's comfort zone, and you're not going to create real balance. So you kind of got to have a little bit of a tremble, you know, when you actually write the check or swipe the credit card or or commit to how much you're going to give away this year. I mean, my wife and I decided to create a formula um, this last year where we said we will give away the greater of 10% of our income or 1% of our net worth. Because for many people, your net worth is, you know, you you try to keep your income low, let's say, if you've already got some wealth. And so your taxable income is, you know, a fraction of what your net worth actually is. And the 10% of income rule just doesn't apply. And so this was a real stretch for us. It was actually double the amount that we've ever given away before. And I felt myself a little nervous about it. So I like that rule of thumb if someone's looking for one. But most importantly, go inside yourself and figure out where the edge is and then just go just a little bit beyond it. As a financial advisor, Brent, you're helping people make decisions about investing. And you really like indexing the S&P 500. But what about companies that in the S&P that really aren't making peace on the planet? How do you feel about social responsibility? I feel very strongly about it. Actually, we don't just index the S&P 500. Um, Number one, we index all the asset classes, and it's very important that people have true diversification. Uh, One of the principles of most major spiritual and religious traditions is that we're all one. We're really all interconnected. And yet when I look at most people's investment portfolios, they might own five or ten mutual funds, or they own 30 or 40 stocks, or even 300 stocks. But when you really look under the hood, all of those underlying investments are large U.S. companies or U.S. bonds. You know, there's very little in most people's portfolios that's outside of those two classes. 
So indexing small stocks, international stocks, we actually invest in about 11,000 companies all over the world. And, you know, the combined employment of all those companies is somewhere north of a couple hundred million people. Um, so we just we feel like our money and our clients' money is touching many, many, many more lives. The way we apply social investing, or what we call sustainable investing, is that we, right now, what we do is invest in a couple of vehicles that screen out tobacco companies, environmental polluters, defense contractors, um, you know, folks that we consider to be profiting from the suffering of other people, really. It's harder to do that internationally in an indexed way, and it's harder to do it with very small company stocks. And we're right now, it's premature to announce it, but we've been, for the last year, designing a couple of products that will let us do just that. Um, and then for our higher net worth clients, I'll just say briefly, we're also making very direct investments into solar and wind power and alternative energy projects and infrastructure, a whole bunch of things you can do on the private placement side of things that we think are making the world a much better place. Brent, would you distill into a sentence or two what you most want our listeners to remember? Make your relationship to money an internal practice. You know, observe yourself from the inside out rather than always focusing your attention on the externalities. It's really not about how the stock market's doing, about how much you're spending, about how much you're husband or wife is spending. It's, it's really mostly about your inner relationship to money. And if you want to change something, you have to start within. Financial advisor Brent Kessel talking with Suzanne Kreider. He's the author of It's Not About the Money, Unlock Your Money Type to Achieve Spiritual and Financial Abundance. You can link to his website from ours. Ours is peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. We can also order CDs, sign up for a newsletter or podcast, and make a tax-deductible contribution to help keep talk of peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution on the radio and on the web. Support from listeners like you is crucial to the survival of this special series. So give if you can at peacetalksradio.com. Peace Talks Radio is produced by Good Radio Shows Incorporated, a nonprofit media organization. We receive support from the Oppenheimer Brothers Foundation, the McCune Charitable Foundation of New Mexico, the Peace Tales CD Project at peacetales.org, and from KUNM at the University of New Mexico. Music today from James Taylor, and our theme music was composed and performed by Ali Adelman. For Suzanne Kreider, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to Peace Talks Radio. Peace Talks Radio.